23 miles south of Jerusalem and seven miles from Hebron was a small cluster of tiny farming villages. As these villages grew together, they formed a little town called Kiriath, a town that would one day give birth to a child who would become the most wretched human being who ever lived. His name was Judas Iscariot. The story of Judas Iscariot is without a doubt the most tragic story in the Bible and in all of life, in all of human history. Only 11 other men in the history of mankind ever had the privilege Judas had, but he completely spurned it and threw it away. In Matthew 13, 17, Jesus told his disciples, for, for assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What a privilege to walk with Jesus and talk with Jesus and watch Jesus personally and listen to Jesus personally for three years. But Judas tossed it aside like a useless piece of trash. There is a technical title for someone who spends time around the truth, hears the truth, understands the truth, appears to embrace the truth, but eventually rejects the truth. The word that is used to describe such a person is the term apostate. An apostate is someone who hangs around the right crowd, blends in, seems like a genuine Christian, appears to be, but eventually rejects the faith, walks away, never to return, because he or she was never genuine in the first place. The classic example of an apostate is Judas Iscariot. I want us to consider his life by way of introduction this morning. The name Judas was a very common name in first century Israel. In fact, there were two of the disciples who had that name, Judas. Judas Lebius Thaddeus was one, and Judas Iscariot was the other. So it was a very common name. It is the Greek form of Judah, the land of God's people. Scholars differ over the derivation of the name. Some say the name comes from a root meaning Yahweh leads, while others think its root has reference to one who is the object of praise. Either way, it's a contradiction. If it means Yahweh leads, it's a contradiction because the gospel accounts make it clear that Judas was led by Satan, not Yahweh. If it means one who is the object of praise, it's a contradiction because there was never an individual more unworthy of praise than Judas Iscariot. The name Iscariot basically comes from a combination of the Hebrew term ish, which means man, and kerioth, the name of the town I mentioned earlier. Ish, kerioth, in Hebrew, he was a man from the town of kerioth. So the word Iscariot, Judas Iscariot, Iscariot is simply a geographical identification. It's interesting that Judas is the only apostle who is identified geographically. 
What I mean is we don't have in the Bible names like Matthew from Hebron or Peter from Jerusalem, but we do have Judas Iscariot, Judas, a man from Cariot. This is important because he was the only non-Galilean among the bunch. He was the only Judean Jew. Now maybe you're wondering, what's the significance of that? Well, if you know much about the land of Israel, then you know that Galilee is the northern section of Israel, and Judea is the southern section. The northern Galilean section was more rural. As a result of being rural, the southern Jews usually saw themselves as superior to the rural Jews of Galilee. Isn't it ironic that the one who was supposedly the most superior was really the most inferior? How did Judas fit in with the other disciples? How did, how did he fit in with the twelve? Why did he follow Jesus for so long? It's obvious that Judas was attracted to Jesus in some way. He followed him and stayed with him much longer than a lot of the other false disciples who bailed out much earlier in our Lord's ministry. For example, in John 6, when thousands, literally thousands of people, walked away from Jesus, Judas remained. But it's obvious that his commitment was not on a spiritual level. It was totally on a selfish level based on what Jesus could do for him. And I think it was directly related to Jesus' offer of the kingdom. Judas wanted popularity, power, position, prestige. And he knew that if Jesus brought the kingdom to Israel at that time, the kingdom promised throughout Hebrew Scripture, then as one of the disciples, he would benefit by being on the inside. So what kind of man was Judas? We have this concept of him that he was an obvious reprobate. When you hear Judas talked about, maybe even when you hear his name mentioned, you may probably picture him as a sinister-looking character that you could pick out of the crowd. Some paintings of the disciples depict him that way. You can just look and you know which one's Judas because of the way he's depicted. Yet I'm convinced from Scripture that he didn't appear any different than any of the other disciples. He didn't look any different. He didn't come across in any different way. For instance, when Jesus made the announcement on the final night of our Lord's life before his death in the upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, when Jesus made the announcement that one of the disciples would betray him, not one of the others suspected Judas. Not one. They had, they had no more reason to suspect Judas than they had reason to suspect themselves. They said, Lord, is, is it I? They didn't say, oh, it's got to be Judas. Judas had perfected the art of hypocrisy. Yet as one man put it, Judas had the same potential as any of the others. Christ could have transformed him if his heart had been willing. He had the same raw material and was no more unqualified than the rest. But the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. While the other disciples were being melted 
and molded and changed and transformed, Judas was being hardened in the presence of Christ. It's interesting to consider the fact that Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and yet Jesus gave Judas every opportunity not to fulfill the prophecies about betrayal. He gave him every opportunity not to do it. So many of the things Jesus taught in his teaching ministry applied directly to Judas. Read through the Gospels sometimes with that lens on. Read through the Gospels from the lens or the standpoint of Judas thinking about what Jesus said in his teaching and see how specifically it pointed to Judas. But he refused to apply any of it. He refused to accept it. He heard what Jesus said over and over and over again, but he refused to embrace it. And when he began to realize that Jesus wasn't going to set up the kingdom during that first coming, Judas decided to betray Jesus for whatever he could get for him. When Jesus started talking about giving his life, when Jesus started talking about dying on the cross, Judas had had it. He was done. He was going to sell Jesus for whatever he could get. So that's what he did. He arranged it all. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And he sent Jesus to his brutal murder. The only man never to do anything wrong, betrayed by his friend, sent by his friend to be brutally murdered. Judas was an apostate. But tragically, he wasn't the last apostate to walk planet Earth. Maybe the saddest part about the story of Judas Iscariot is that his story has been repeated time and time again down through history. Maybe it's even being repeated right now in some of your lives. You're not real. You're not genuine. But no one else knows it. Because you, you blend into the crowd. You just go along with the flow, but, but you've never really trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You, you don't have a genuine relationship with Christ. There's no relationship there. You know that. But maybe others don't. I appeal to you, swallow your pride and humble yourself before God to receive his son, Jesus Christ. Don't repeat the story of Judas again. It certainly can be repeated because the apostle Peter warns about that possibility in chapter 2 of his second epistle. Let's turn there together to our text that we have been considering for the last few weeks, Second Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 2. Please follow along as I read verses 17 through 22, although our focus will be on verses 20 through 22. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error, while they themselves 
promised them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, having washed herself, returns to her wallowing in the mire. As we have seen over the last several weeks, this second chapter of Peter's letter is focused on false teachers. From the very first verse of this chapter to the last verse of this chapter, the focus is false teachers. Now maybe you're wondering, how does this relate to Judas Iscariot and his story? He wasn't a false teacher, was he? No, he wasn't. He was an apostate, but he didn't go on from there to become a false teacher, an apostate false teacher, because if you know the story, he ended his own life. However, many apostates do eventually become false teachers. When people hang around the truth and get exposure to the truth, but end up rejecting the the truth, they often go on from there to become people who oppose the truth and teach contrary to the truth. Because they are so familiar with the truth, and they end up rejecting it, maybe even despising it, They determine that they're going to do everything they can to steer people away from it. And they know that one of the best ways they can do that is to stay in organized religion. After all, the perspective of many is that, well, the problem is, is religion that is so narrow, so biblical, so I need to stay in religion and give people some liberty, as Peter says here, some freedom from the oppression of this narrow biblical religion. So, many become ministers, or priests, or reverends, or professors who teach religion, but it's not, it's not what lines up with the accurate teaching of the written Word of God. That's the connection between apostates and false teachers. Not all apostates become false teachers, but many do. And that's why Peter connects the two here in this section of his letter. If we were to break down or outline this long section from verses 10 through 22, you could do it this way, three divisions. Verses 10 through 16 describe the character of false teachers. Verses 17 to 19 describe the work of false teachers. Verses 20 through 22 describe the destiny of false teachers. That's one way to break down this long section consisting of verses 10 through 22. When Peter describes the character of false teachers, he sets forth their arrogance in verses 10 through 13a and their sensuality in verses 13b through 16. That's their character. Then Peter describes the work of false teachers in verses 17 to 19, which we looked at last week. And now he closes the chapter with the tragic personal status or 
destiny of false teachers in verses 20 through 22. Peter's basic message in this chapter, and he says a lot, as you've seen. He says a whole lot. But his basic message is that false teachers who lead others astray with their error will not escape the judgment of God. In fact, their judgment will be even more severe. He says back in verse 9 that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. He is basically saying this, listen, all unsaved people will be judged someday, but especially false teachers who have led others astray in their error. And that's the way Peter closes this chapter. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, For if... After they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Peter is here describing what often happens with apostates. They start hanging around the truth, hearing the truth, and knowing the truth with the result that changes begin to take place in their lives. They're not converted yet, but they begin to be influenced by the truth, by the crowd they are hanging around. As they learn about the Lord Jesus Christ and hear about Him and begin to acquire knowledge of Him, which is the word Peter uses here, a knowledge of Him, they find themselves moving away from the pollutions of the world. Again, it's important to stress the point that these individuals have not come to faith in Christ. They don't have a relationship with Christ. They haven't surrendered their lives to Christ, just like Judas never surrendered his life and will to Christ. But they are learning about Christ. They are gaining a knowledge of Christ. This knowledge shows them the way to escape the defilements of the world. That's what Peter is saying here. As a side note, I think it's very unfortunate that the NIV translates this verse. And if you have an NIV, notice, translates the verse by saying, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a very unfortunate translation. Peter is not talking about people who know Jesus Christ. He is talking about people who know of or know about the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, there is a huge difference. To state it in a more technical manner, Peter does not use a participle here, which would be, the, would be how it should be translated if it were a participle in the NIV, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not what he uses. If this were a participle, it would be correct to translate this verse with the phrase, knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But Peter doesn't use a participle. He uses a noun. He is not talking about knowing the Lord Jesus. He is talking about a knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Again, I say there is a huge difference. It is possible to know about the Lord Jesus Christ, but not really know him personally. In fact, when Jesus described the final judgment in Matthew 7, 
he said that there will be many who will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not? And then they list all of their religious credentials. So those people will know about Jesus. They will know who he is. They will know him as the Lord. This is the Lord. So they address him that way. Lord, Lord. Those people will know about Jesus. However, Jesus went on to say that he will tell, tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. Those people will know about Jesus, but they will be sent away from him because there was no relationship. They know of him or about him, but they don't know him personally. They don't know him genuinely. So I want to state it again to make sure there's no misunderstanding. Peter is not talking about knowing the Lord Jesus in this verse. He is talking about a knowledge of the Lord Jesus. He is describing people who have gained some knowledge about the Lord Jesus and some help in knowing how to escape the corruption of the world. Think about Judas. In fact, I I wonder if Peter himself was not thinking of Judas when he wrote these words. Judas knew a lot about Jesus. And in large measure, he escaped the corruption of the world. In many ways, he looked just like the other 11 disciples who were genuine believers. But Judas wasn't. That's what Peter is describing. And he gives a sober warning. He says of such people, verse 20, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Well, this begs the question, why is the latter end worse for them than at the beginning? Why? There are at least two possible answers to the question, and one of them is a certainty. One possible reason for Peter writing this is because when a person turns away from the truth, he or she often turns back to a worse lifestyle than he had before his exposure to the truth. Maybe you've seen this with people who are your acquaintance. People who hang around the church for a while, they have some exposure, they gain some knowledge about Jesus, but they eventually walk away. And when they walk away, they go back to a far worse lifestyle than they had previously. It is often the case that a person doesn't merely revert back to the way he was living prior to his exposure to the truth. It is not uncommon for the person to turn away from the truth and dive deeper into sin. After all, he has more in his conscience that he's got to try to to bludgeon and try to overcome. So it's not uncommon to dive deeper into sin. That may be what is behind Peter's statement here in verse 20. But there is another issue that is definitely in Peter's mind when he writes these words. It is worse for someone to be exposed to the truth and not embrace it than it is for someone who has never been exposed to the truth. That is a fact that is undeniable. It is worse because Jesus made it clear that judgment will be more severe for the person who has had exposure to the truth and walked away from it. Let me show you this back in Matthew chapter 11. Go from 
Peter's letter back to the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11. <clears throat> this teaching of Jesus here is the kind of thing that was clearly in Peter's mind when he wrote that statement in his letter. Matthew chapter 11. Verses 20 through 24 record a strong condemnation from Jesus concerning the pride of the people in three cities where Jesus carried out most of his miraculous works. And beloved, the implications of this warning are really scary. They are. The principle that Jesus sets forth here is clear. The more exposure and opportunity someone has to turn to Christ, then the stricter the judgment God will mete out if there is no repentance. And this concept isn't unique to this passage. Other passages of Scripture bring out this same fact. The more revelation someone has, the greater his responsibility. To use our Lord's own words, to whom much is given, from him much is required. And that's a scary thought for all the people who go to church Sunday after Sunday, but they never repent of their sin. They never turn to Christ. It's a scary thought for those who are raised in Christian homes, but they turn from the truth. That is the kind of thing that Jesus was so grieved about here in Matthew 11. The people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had no excuses for rejecting Christ. The problem wasn't a lack of exposure. The problem wasn't a lack of information. The problem was hard-heartedness. Or maybe it was apathy. But in either case, it was inexcusable. So Jesus utters some fearful words of judgment. Verse 20, Matthew introduces this by saying, Then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Notice those final words, because they did not repent. That was the crux of the matter. The people in these three cities would not repent. The people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum thought they were fine. They thought they, they assumed they didn't need to repent. They were pridefully self-righteous. After Matthew's introduction here in verse 20, he records the actual words of Jesus, the condemnations that Jesus unleashed on these three cities. Verse 21 Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities out on the Mediterranean coast and a little north of Galilee. The Jewish people considered the people of those cities pagans. They considered them heathens. The Jewish people saw themselves as far better than the people of those cities. But Jesus in his omniscience knew that if the people of Tyre and Sidon had seen and experienced all the miraculous works that had been done in Chorazin and Bethsaida, the people of Tyre and Sidon would have repented in deep humility. They would have put on sackcloth and ashes which were signs of deep sorrow and sadness and repentance. The people of Chorazin and Bethsaida were accountable for all that they had seen and experienced. That lack of response to our Lord's 
gracious, miraculous ministry in their midst brought this strong condemnation from our Lord. Verse 22, Jesus says, But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. The point is clear. The more exposure someone has to the Lord and His truth, the more accountable that person will be in the day of judgment. By the way, this is one of many passages in the Bible that indicates that hell will not be the same for everyone. What I mean is, there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Don't ask me to explain how that is so, because I can't explain it. But there are several passages that indicate this is the case. Jesus clearly says that the people of Tyre and Sidon will not be judged with the same severity as the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now all who die without faith in Christ will be judged, but God in His infinite wisdom and justice will mete out His judgment in exactly the proper way. The more revelation, the more truth, the more information someone has, the greater his responsibility. Verse 23 records our Lord saying, And you, Capernaum, you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Capernaum received an even greater indictment because it was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. He taught in their synagogue. Jesus spent a great deal of time there. He did many mighty works there. In fact, five of the ten miracles recorded in chapters 8 and 9 of this book took place right there in Capernaum. It was there that Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. It was there he healed the nobleman's son. It was there he healed the demoniac, Peter's mother-in-law, the woman with the hemorrhage, the two blind men, the centurion's servant, the dumb demoniac, and the paralytic who was lowered through the roof by his friends. What a privilege that city had. No wonder Jesus said, you're exalted to heaven. You're exalted above all other places on planet earth. Because the headquarters of Jesus' ministry was right there. He adopted Capernaum as his own town, even though he was from Nazareth. He adopted Capernaum as his hometown. What a privilege. But verse 24, Jesus says, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Those words ought to make us shudder. You remember what God did to Sodom? You know the story. He buried it under fire and brimstone so there would be no doubt about how God viewed their wickedness, their gross immorality. He devastated it so severely that still to this day, archaeologists don't know exactly where it was located. But here Jesus says, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for the people of Capernaum. That is an astounding statement. Again, I warn you, if you have had exposure to the truth in Christ, about Christ, and you reject that, or you are indifferent to it, your judgment will be severe. This reality 
It is what is, what is behind Peter's statement in 2 Peter chapter 2. Let's go back there to our text, to 2 Peter 2. So Peter says in verse 20, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. And then he explains further what he means. Verse 21, he says, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is, this is exactly what we just saw in the stern condemnation of Jesus against Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from it. Their judgment will be more severe. And Peter says here the same thing is true for all people who have had the privilege of exposure to the truth that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a heinous thing. It is a heinous thing to take the privilege of being exposed to the truth and to cast it aside and to trample on it. Notice the way that Peter refers to the truth here in this verse. In the first part of verse 21, he refers to the truth as the way of righteousness. And in the last half of the verse, he refers to it as the holy commandment delivered to them. Both phrases are describing the same thing. Both phrases are talking about the truth of salvation that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the people that Peter has in mind when he writes these words are people who were looking at the truth and considering the truth and hanging around it and walking toward that path, but after a while they decided no. No, they rejected it. Because that is such a heinous choice, Peter closes this chapter with two graphic pictures of an apostate. Verse 22, he says, But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, having washed herself, returns to her wallowing in the mire. It is obvious as soon as you read this verse that neither of these illustrations is very pleasant. I mean, not when you really think about what he's saying. Both of them are somewhat repulsive. And that's part of the point that Peter wants to make. People who spurn the glorious truth of Christ and go back to their old ways are like a dog returning to its own vomit and are like a sow wallowing in the mire. Those are the two illustrations that came to Peter's mind when he wrote this section of his letter. Those are the two illustrations, the two pictures that came into Peter's mind when he thought about the people in mind here, people who have this glorious opportunity to the marvelous truth of the gospel and walk away from it. The first illustration that Peter uses is from Proverbs 26.11, which says, As a dog returns to its own vomit so a fool repeats his folly. That proverb is true in regard to many situations in life where a fool repeats his folly. But Peter quotes that because it is especially true of those who totally turn back from the truth of Christ and turn back 
to their old way of life. When someone does that, it is like a dog returning to its vomit. The second illustration that Peter uses seems to be one that he came up with on his own. It's not quoting anything necessarily. Being Jewish, he had not spent a lot of time around pigs, but he knew enough about them to know that even if you give a pig a bath, it will go right back to wallowing in the mud and slime and its own filth. I like the way the ESV translates this phrase. It says, And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallowing in the mire. That's a really good translation because it makes it clear that this is not, please hear this, this is not someone who has been saved and washed by Christ. This is someone who has washed himself. Someone who has washed herself. That is, this is someone who has decided, I need to turn over a new leaf in life. I need to make some changes in my life. I need to make some, some resolutions, New Year's resolutions or other kinds of revolutions to, to make some changes. But this is someone who has never surrendered to Christ to be changed by Him. This is someone, let me say it this way, this is someone who pursued reformation without regeneration. Just wanting to reform his life, reform her life, but not from regeneration from Christ. This is not a saved person. This is not someone who is a new creation in Christ. This is someone who decided to make some changes in his or her life, but never truly and fully surrendered to Christ, and after a while decided just to walk away from all of it. That kind of scenario, says Peter, is like a sow who has washed herself only to return to wallowing in the mud and slime and her own filth. That's what Peter thought of when he contemplated people who are exposed to the glorious truth of Christ and turn away. I'll tell you something. This, this is a scary passage for those of you who attend this church, but you have not surrendered your will and your life to Jesus Christ. If you die in that condition, or if you eventually turn and just walk away, never to return, you will, you will find out that it would have been better not to have known. Better not to have known. Don't be one of those people. Don't be. Genuinely surrender to Christ. Let's bow together as we close. We began this message by talking about Judas Iscariot. Someone who looked real, looked genuine, appeared to be, seemed to be. None of his friends knew any different. None of his friends knew any better. They thought he was real, genuine. They never suspected him. It just shows us how, how easy it is for a person to blend in, to go along with the crowd. And that's why I never want to assume, I never want to assume that all the people who are gathered here on a Sunday, whether it's morning, evening, that all truly, genuinely know Christ. I'm convinced that is not the case. I'm certain it is not the case. There are always people present who do not 
truly know Christ as Lord and Savior. But we could never, we could never pick you out of a crowd. We would never know. But the Lord knows. And you know. If that is you, you need to hear what the Word of God says. It would be better for you not to have known than to know and just sit there and really do nothing about it genuinely in your heart and life. If you have never surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ, if you've never entered into a relationship with Him in which you truly know Him, you need to humble yourself before God and in simple childlike faith call out to Jesus Christ. Ask Him to be your Lord and Savior. Tell Him you want to be real. Tell Him you want to be genuine. And if that's a question that's in your mind, if you're not certain, if that's something that plagues you, like, well, I, I want to be real, but I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Then just make it certain. It doesn't hurt to reaffirm your desire to the Lord Jesus to have Him as your Lord and Savior. If you're not sure, just say, Lord, I, I want to be sure. I want to surrender my life to You. I want to know You. I don't want to be like Judas Iscariot. I don't want to be like one of these people that Peter describes here at the end of chapter 2. I want to truly belong to you, follow you, live for you, love you, and spend eternity with you. If you will call out to the Lord with that kind of cry, that kind of humility, that kind of simple childlike faith, He will hear. He will hear. Our Father, as we close our time together this morning, a very sobering passage we have considered. It's not surprising that Peter would write it, because after all, it was one of his best friends, Judas, that was not genuine. And Peter had no idea. Not until after the fact, he had no idea. How he must have thought about that in the years that followed, contemplated that, mulled that over in his mind, and surely that is part of what prompted him to write the words that we considered this morning, written from the pen of Peter, but under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And so we know that the Holy Spirit wants us to see these truths, to hear these words, to understand them. And Father, how we pray, oh, how we pray for anyone who is hearing these words right now, who is not real, who is not genuine, who is like Judas, appears to be real, blends in with the crowd, but is not sincere in his or her devotion to Christ. Shatter any false hope, false assurance. And may your Holy Spirit bring that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, into a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ so, they, so that they will never stand before him someday and hear the words, I never knew you. Depart from me. May your Holy Spirit be pleased to work that grace in everyone's life who needs to surrender to Christ today. And we pray these things in his precious and matchless and saving name. Amen.